miss the show no worries we've got you covered on point and on the podcast we mark the anniversary of the two michaels with troubling questions about why the trudeau government would let the canadian military in to see our military secrets yes we start the vaccinations tuesday but we are months from being protected so why do we still not have rapid testing in place nine months into this thing and we speak to the half brother of justin trudeau who joins us and we discover the apple does fall very, very far from the tree. Interesting chat. So let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. Let me be perfectly clear. China does not act like a partner or a friend. In fact, communist China acts against human rights and the rule of law consistently. To learn that the Trudeau cabinet is kowtowing to Beijing is frankly disturbing. This highlights the liberals' approach and their dangerous approach to China. The government needs to wake up. Prime Minister Trudeau's naive approach to China must stop now. Two years to the day of their kidnapping, and it's clear that the Trudeau government has no strategy other than to kiss up to China. Alex Pearson with you on this December 10th, and we wish you a happy Hanukkah to our Jewish friends. Absolutely. uh, I don't know if you saw the sun uh, set tonight. It was absolutely stunning. And of course, it is the celebration of lights. And that is what we got with that sunset. Eight days of lighting candles and eating a lot of fried, greasy, sugary, starchy food. How can you not love that? We, of course, celebrate both in our household. So uh, pretty much from here on out, it is all fun for my child anyway. Uh, And I I mean, really, who could not use a little light in their life after this year? Really? You know, because we got the modeling numbers and uh, they're dark and this lockdown is not working. And I think these numbers tell us more lockdowns that won't work are coming. So we will talk with the doctor in just a couple of minutes about the modeling numbers. But yes, here we are. We mark the two-year anniversary, the day, of course, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig were kidnapped and jailed in nothing short of a hostage-taking. And um, there was some kind of hearing today, um, but we woke up to news that they had already been indicted and tried, and then that got clarified that it didn't happen. But it is just a matter of time before they're convicted of doing no actual crime because there's no such thing as justice in China. And so now here we are, 730 days. That's how many days these men have spent in jail. And we get this, uh, you know, on the news of these explosive documents, of course, that reveal the Trudeau government was more concerned about offending China, even after the Michaels were kidnapped, uh, and our national security, than, you know, it was in actually protecting our national security because they did not want to cancel these military invitations, I guess, to the Chinese military to come here and learn cold weather survival training. And the military had canceled it because the U.S. rightfully lost its crap. I mean, why would we teach China anything about how our military works, let alone how we deal with the cold, given they pose such a threat to our Arctic sovereignty? I mean, if any other leader pulled this stunt, their political career would be absolutely over. But once again, he skates. Instead, earlier today, Aaron O'Toole was grilled on, okay, well, what would you do? 
I would have been dealing with China with eyes wide open from day one. Mr. Trudeau has been dangerously naive. Those are words of some of our former diplomats who've said that. And his close associations with the fundraising, the transition team, has him out of step with the reality of China. Even two years ago, when the two Michaels were first, uh, were first taken hostage, he called them regular consular cases. We knew that these weren't regular consular cases. We knew that this was diplomatic hostage taking. There you go. O'Toole said he would uh, call in for Magnitsky. He'd, uh, he'd, he'd throw that out. And he'd also align with our allies to uh, go at this together. But you got to wonder, like, whose interests are, are the Trudeau government protecting, Canada's or Chinese? The, the kidnapping of these men should have been a red line. And so should the attack uh, on our canola farmers, China's aggression to Hong Kong, and of course, lying about COVID. Any one of these things should have prompted swift and tough action. And all we ever get, all we ever get is like this limp noodle mushy talk, even when he was asked today about the two Michaels, that this is what we got. And we have uh, developed an approach uh, that looks at absolutely everything we can do to bring them home safely. And we have uh, continued to do that every step of the way uh, with uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. It's not working. It's not working. Like he says nothing and does even less. And I just watched that press conference and not one, que not one question was asked about, you know, why would you be angry? Why would you even allow the military from China to come up here? Why would you even think that's okay? Like any other leader around the world would be dumped. I mean, that would be grounds for dismissal. Not this guy. He doesn't even get questioned about it. But these men have been uh, tortured and deprived of basic humanity as punishment. And, and their crime was that there was no crime. And you got to imagine what they've endured while this government twiddles its thumbs, kissing up to this thuggish regime, hoping that somehow ass kissing is a workable strategy. Well, it's not. And by now, it should be very clear that um, this government has no strategy when it comes to China. And China knows this. And now they play with us like a, a cat toys with a mouse before eating it. And it's a clear lack of, of leadership on this, I think, that suggests it's time to take things into our own hand. So I was reading about this new campaign and it involves a close friend of Michael Kovrig. This is a British fella who um, was a special advisor on China and uh, got to know Mr. Kovrig quite well. And he's now asking the world, specifically also Canadians, speak for these Michaels. And he's asking that we send a Christmas card to the Michaels. And it may not change anything, but it sure as heck would put a burr under the saddle of China and irritate them. Because China may think it can push Trudeau around, but Canadians can and should flood the Chinese embassy in Ottawa with millions of Christmas cards with messages in this campaign called hashtag free China hostages. And all you have to do is get a Christmas card and send this message. Dear China, hostage taking is not diplomacy. It's a violation of international law and human rights. Free the two Michaels now. And add on, please send these notes to the Michaels. And then take a picture of your card, put it online, and send it to the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. No swearing, no hate, just a simple message how, you know, we can express our, our disgust and send a message to China. I mean, what do we have to lose at this point? After all, the guy who's going to have to deal with a flood of cards for Michaels 
is the ambassador who keeps making these veiled threats to Canada while on Canadian soil. So if nothing else, sending thousands of Christmas cards supporting the Michaels will just irritate the hell out of him and China while politely telling them what they can do with their threats. Because, as, you know, until this government grows a backbone and somehow comes up with a, a strategy other than inviting China's military to come and get our military secrets, the least we can do is speak up for the Michaels. And that really is, I mean, we'll talk about all of this, of course, in the nine o'clock hour because it's um, it, it's escalating and nothing changes and there is no there is no strategy. And that's why we find ourselves in the position we are now. In the nine o'clock hour, we're also going to speak with Justin Trudeau's half-brother. And let me just tell you, the apple falls very, very, very far from the tree. I would have been dealing with China with eyes wide open from day one. Mr. Trudeau has been dangerously naive. Those are words of some of our former diplomats who've said that. And his close associations with fundraising, the transition team has him out of step with the reality of China. Even two years ago, when the two Michaels were first, uh, were first taken hostage, he called them regular consular cases. We knew that these weren't regular consular cases. We knew that this was diplomatic hostage taking. All right, here we are two years to the day of their kidnapping, and we are no closer to getting the two Michaels released. And we woke up to news this morning that they had been indicted, but apparently that did not happen. It was a miscommunication. But there is no question that these men will be convicted because there is no such thing as justice in China. And then there are these explosive documents that the Chinese military had been invited to take part in our and then it was canceled by our military because the U.S. basically lost its mind, thought we'd lost our minds. And then we learned the Trudeau government was angered by this decision because they didn't want to upset China. So what do we do? Well, we send our military to take part in the propaganda of the military games in Wuhan. I got to wonder whose side the government is on these days because their complete lack of strategy suggests it is not this country's. Charles Burton joining us now, associate professor at uh, Brock University, specializing in politics of China, Canada-China relations and human rights. Also served as counselor at the uh, Canadian Embassy to China. And Charles, I have to think these days that you wish you had a different specialty. That's so true. But you know, at my age, it's hard to retrain to anything more life-affirming. So I'm pretty much stuck with it. So let's hope that things go better with China and my spirits will improve. Yeah, but they're not going well. And the reality is uh, we keep learning of these um, pretty, you know, unbelievable things. I want to get your reaction to the documents that have been, uh, you know, have come out, you know, begs the question. I don't know how this government could ever think it appropriate uh, or smart to allow this regime to access anything of our military. But cold weather training at a time when China is a direct threat to our Arctic sovereignty. I mean, it's just, you know, I read the whole thing with, a, you know, as you say, this agonizing horror as it went from bad to worse the more you read. I mean, the gist of it is that, you know, our government wants to somehow or other get back to relations with China that serve the interests of the corporate and political elite and uh, put, you know, making money for Canadian corporations number one in the relationship and everything else simply to go along with what China wants. And one would have thought that, you know, the most logical thing to do if if you were engaged in collaboration with the Chinese Communist Party's People's Liberation Army, which, you know, is loyal to the party, not to the state, 
is that you would say, well, you, you know, you're engaging in hostage diplomacy for no reason against two Canadian citizens. So we're sorry, but we're not going to participate in your military games. And uh, any notion that you can send your people to better understand our operations, shortcomings and strategic priorities is not happening. I mean, one can see that it makes sense to have relationships between militaries to build up understanding and trust. But let's face it, you know, China is our is our strategic uh, competitor. There's a possibility that this will, in fact, turn into a military conflict in years ahead. And you cannot trust the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, I don't know what's going on with those people in the Pearson building in Ottawa, but they certainly don't have the same understanding of China that nearly all Canadians do, according to recent public opinion polls. Yeah, and the polling overwhelmingly shows that Can- Canadians, by and large, want a much tougher stance uh, when it comes to China. And and we've seen a bit of a shift with this government. But again, it all seems to be optics when you see these documents, because it's very clear that they have no other strategy than to appease China. I, I think that's right. I mean, what we're getting out of the government these days is mostly rhetoric, expressions of concern, but not doing anything the Chinese regime wouldn't actually like. And so I think we're sending a signal to Beijing that hostage diplomacy works for them. You know, Canada won't bar uh, Huawei 5G. We won't be applying Magnitsky sanctions against uh, Chinese communist officials, some of whom have investment here in Canada, who are complicit in genocidal policies towards Turkic Muslims. We won't be doing anything about China's violation of their commitment to to us as, as signatories of the uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration on Hong Kong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, harassment of people in Canada, coercion of, uh, of Chinese students here, um, pervasive cyber espionage. I mean, there are a lot of things the government should be getting on the case of China about, and we're not doing any of it. So, you know, what does that say about Canada and and, uh, and the people who are representing uh, Canada back in Ottawa? Aaron O'Toole does and has had a pretty um, tough stance on China, and uh, this goes in his favor. And he was very critical today of the Trudeau government, you know, pointing out that, you know, we, we could have a plan. We could strategically align ourselves with Australia, with British, with the United States, and as a, as a front, you know, go at them. But Canada, just for whatever reason, is going on this completely different, uh, you know, trajectory. And then, you know, you we have this week, that, and you wrote about this, that the UN Genocide Commemoration Day was this week. We got nothing out of the government, of the Trudeau government. The whole world knows that it's ethnically cleansing these Uyghur Muslims, does nothing. And and again, we allow these thuggish regimes to do this, and then others will follow suit. So why do we even bother having something like the Magnitsky, Magnitsky Act? Exactly. If we have such legislation, and we're not putting any of the names of the regime that is, you know, the largest violator of human rights and crimes against humanity on the planet, we're sending a signal to China that, you know, they, they, they're getting away with it. I mean, it's, it's a law of Canada to determine who should be considered under this um, particular legislation. And we have put people from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Sudan and so on on the list, Russia. 
But mm -hmm. uh, China looks at that list and says, yeah, we're doing, we're, we've got the Canadians, you know, they won't even put people who are complicit in genocide on, on their Magnitsky list and have no plans to do so. Moreover, we're not initiating legislation as Australia has to control the activities of Chinese agents engaging in corrupt, covert and coercive behavior. And this, when Canada's total external trade is less than 4% to China of our total trade. It used to be a little bit more until the Chinese you know, violated those canola export contracts. Whereas Australia, who is doing the right thing and standing up for the international rules-based order and Australian values, is over a third dependent on the Chinese economy and external trade. So, you know, it should be the other way around. And we're certainly not comparing favorably to our like-minded allies with the appeasing policies, as you say, of the current government, mm -hmm. afraid to say. I do want to talk about the two Michaels because you are taking part in a campaign that I think is is terrific. You know, it gives a chance for Canadians not to do a ton. It may not get the Michaels released, but it's certainly easy to do. And I think Canadians do want to speak up. It's hashtag free China hostages. And this is the idea of sending Christmas cards to the Michaels by sending them to the Chinese embassy in Ottawa so that Ambassador Kung Pei Wu, who has threatened this country a couple of times in the last month, I mean, it may not get them released, but it sure would aggravate and put a burr under the saddle of China. Um, you know, and it's a way for Canadians to stand up for what they think is right. Yes, this is an international campaign. It was started by uh, Charlie Parton, a friend of mine at the Royal United Services Institute, who was close to Michael uh, Kovrick when they were both serving in their respective embassies in Beijing. Um, you know, I think what uh, what Charlie says is when Kovrick and Svavor are released, they're going to wonder, what did people do to support them? And mm -hmm. as you say, this is a simple thing. You just go out there, you get a couple of Christmas cards, a couple of envelopes, some stamps, send it into the Chinese embassy, and take a picture of your Christmas card and post it on your favorite social media with the hashtag free China hostages. And, uh, you know, it should be sending a message to the Chinese embassy when hopefully they're swamped with, uh, with these Christmas cards that Canadians really care about the human costs of what they're doing in their geostrategic strategy of hostage diplomacy. I can't think of a better way to keep uh, the ambassador busy as he reads these. And of course, uh, we hope that they do get to the, the Michaels. But nonetheless, I would love to see millions of Canadians, uh, you know, just absolutely dwarf the embassy with Christmas cards for Michael. And at least, you know, that gives us a voice. Um, Charles, we'll talk about this again, I'm sure. And uh, I appreciate your time always. Thank you again. Charles Burton joining us. And again, this is Hashtag free China hostages. You write the letter, dear China, hostage taking is not diplomacy. It's a violation of international law and human rights. Free the two Michaels now. Send that to the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. And again, if it does nothing else, then bother China and get their attention. We've done our job. Thank you very much. And of course, we'll take a quick break and we'll get into the modeling numbers because the lockdowns aren't working, which tells us more lockdowns are coming. Alex Pearson here with you on point. This is Global News Radio. The current set of restrictions that really started on September 19th have not had uh, as much impact on mobility and likely on contacts as the very dramatic restrictions that we had uh, in the spring. Uh, however, a relaxation of public health interventions at this point, uh, particularly with the widening prevention gap that we see, uh, will likely lead to an even higher uh, case growth. 
There you go. That is the uh, Dr. Brown, um, one of the uh, chief medical officers dealing with the, uh, you know, the lockdown and restrictions. And uh, the good news is we're getting a vaccine. The bad news is we're months away from getting it. And the worst news is that the lockdowns are not working as many thought they might. Um, but at some point, you know, we've got to get on with our lives. Um, and those in charge have to come up with a plan to live with this virus, because we cannot keep locking down our lives and destroying our economies, destroying our schools, and essentially going nuts one day at a time. And, you know, one of the ways, and we talk about it, I mean, I, I must talk about this every single day on the show, is getting back normal could be bringing in rapid testing. And all we get then is talk. And this was approved by the Trudeau government back in September, and that was months into this thing, but it's still not in our schools in all of our long-term care. It is not in wide distribution in any way. Yes, it's available in spitter and spatter here and there all over Canada, but it is not where it should be, which is places that would slow the spread. And, and you know, we're all told, this is the game changer. This is a game changer. Okay, great. Then let's start playing the game, okay? Because all we're getting is talk. I want to bring in uh, Dr. Prabhat Jha, who's an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, as well as director of the Centre for Global Health Research at St. Mike's Hospital. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming in. Do we have the doctor? Good evening. Think he can... Oh, there you are. I can slowly hear you there. All right, there we go. Um, great to have you here with us. This is something that you have been very, very vocal about with rapid testing, and I talk about it all the time, but I just don't understand why we talk about it, and yet we don't see it in mass distribution. Well, that's a good question. I think in part because the uh, regulatory authorities uh, weren't in a position to get a rapid test approved uh, because they were concerned about a few things. One is how well the test performs. It will give you false positives and sometimes false negatives. Uh, so they're worried, how would people use this? And rapid tests also have to be linked to a system of contact tracing uh, to be most effective. And that's actually not in place. So mm -hmm. what we have here is uh, a realization that what should have been done in the summer Mm -hmm. was precisely to scale up the existing testing, which is the PCR testing, the one that you get a swab and they run through a, a machine and you get your results 24 hours later. It should have been paired with expanded rapid testing, but targeted to particular areas. And all of that linked to the ability to do better contact tracing, including better use of the, of the apps. But unfortunately, I think for Canada and for Canadians, all of those things have not really done well. The, the standard testing has improved. So now Quebec and Ontario are testing upwards of 100,000 uh, uh, people a day with that rapid testing, but, uh, or excuse me, with that routine testing. But those other pillars aren't in place. So it's very unfortunate. We just we blew the summer when we should have been getting ready. Yeah, we also uh, blew the option of, of watching what other countries do, places like Taiwan, other countries that got ahead of this and managed to shut it down very quickly. And, and the key to it, in, in a big key to it, was tracing and, and mass testing. And we don't do either. Um, but, you know, I know it's not a perfect system. 
but certainly um, rapid testing is an extra barrier that would help in schools, airports, all the long-term care, you know, hospitals, anywhere, uh, you know, religious, anywhere. It should be in our houses at this point. And I get the sense that all those in charge are looking for perfection where other countries are using it and actually having a, a, a degree of great success in slowing the spread quite a bit. And I'm not sure if you heard uh, with the modeling today. I mean, Dr. DeVille admitted 70% of the cases being reported aren't even being traced, which to me is just not just disgraceful, that's negligent. Well, you have to be careful when you compare across countries. So, for example, in Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan, they've had a very different epidemic than, than us. And it might well be that they never were going to get whacked like we did because of uh, immunity to the virus that's circulating along with the virus. So the more comparable thing is to look at places that are more similar to Canada, for example, Germany. Mm -hmm. And now Germany had a very good testing system uh, from the beginning. And that's one of the reasons it had quite good control in the first wave. Now, the second wave, it is true that also in Germany, they let their guard down. Europe went on vacation in the summer and um, they are struggling to cope with this uh, second viral wave. So, but what that means for Canada, I think, is reasonably straightforward. It's never too late to try to really ramp up very effective testing and contact tracing strategies. So, what that would mean is really a, a very strong emphasis to try to get the rapid tests available, and then also targeted. I mean, it'll give you a very simple example. 80% of the deaths that occurred from COVID occurred mm -hmm. in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. It's been well documented that much of that was because not of family uh, getting their uh, relatives infected, but because of the staff, very overworked, uh, often underpaid staff. And the recommendation from many places is nursing home staff should be tested twice a week. But in many places, it's so uneven, it's lucky if they get tested every two weeks. So we, that's an absolute priority is to try to get testing expanded. In the same way your piece before mentioned that the vaccines are going to try to protect uh, nursing homes by uh, inoculating the staff, it's the same logic. If you've got an infected staff and they stay home and don't infect others, then you will keep nursing home deaths under control. So targeted use of rapid diagnostics, uh, I think, is absolutely needed. Um, and I still don't understand why there's hesitancy uh, to be able to introduce these and really scale them up. We have some successes, to be fair to the federal government. The Calgary airport is piloting rapid tests and seeing whether that might be a feasible, uh, feasible way out. Um, I recently traveled for some emergency COVID work to Sierra Leone. And sure enough, what I got was a test at this end. But when I landed, right. they also did a rapid test and um, a nasal swab for a more confirmatory test. And, you know, things actually were, were possible uh, to do with that kind of system. So we absolutely need it in a few of the key areas. So nursing home staff, I do believe teachers should be very much at the front of the queue. Absolutely. Yeah. 
as an extra support for healthcare workers. Uh, and then key industries, uh, Toronto Pearson, for example, is such an economically important part of the country, yet it uh, it could really benefit from doing these rapid testing and, and opening things up. Let me let me jump in because I mean one of the most shocking reports that I have read in the last couple of weeks is about all the um, essential workers that have been going in and out of, of Canada and the United States and, and doing so for months and we need them to do that because they're fueling our supply chains and so they come into the country they go out of the country they turn around really quickly and to find that six and a half million people have been back and forth since March and of that over five million didn't even get not only. Uh, traced or their name written down, that is an area where they should have had rapid testing in, not only to protect these workers, but to protect their communities, to protect their families. None of that happened. And that's a federal jurisdiction. That's a lost opportunity. You know, we've only got uh, 5.5 million rapid tests uh, available right now in Canada. I mean, that is not going to last more than, you know, half a day. I mean, by this point of where we are, you know, when we're shutting down businesses and absolutely destroying economies, we have been caught so flat-footed on so many elements of this. Um, you know, it just makes you shake your head as to to you know, what are we waiting for? Well, I think we've. Uh, it would really be up to the provinces, and I'm looking to Premier Ford to set the um, example that, along with the vaccines, which people kind of get, and but. You can't have undue faith in vaccines because you need to, in the interim, yeah. have expanded testing and strategy, uh, testing uh, strategies. So, but part of that would be very much trying to expand the use of the COVID app. Mm-hmm. Remarkably, the COVID app doesn't work on older phones, and there is no easy way to link it uh, to, let's say, a rapid test. So uh, we need these kind of innovations, and I, I'm somewhat optimistic because I think there's now a lot more grassroots push to try to get um, testing and tracing more widely uh, widely accessible. The contact tracing has simply didn't have enough people signed up and they've given up in areas. But to pick up the slack, the hospitals now are doing contact tracing for the people they see in their clinics or in their testing sites. So we, we have to figure out what is needed to keep the pandemic under control while we get the vaccines introduced. But right. waiting for everything, waiting for uh, just the vaccine is just a recipe for more misery and more misfortune, unfortunately. Well, I hope they figure it out before the pandemic's over, because you're right, we are causing ourselves a whole lot more problems than I think we need. Uh, and I appreciate you uh, joining us to explain. Thank you. You're welcome. Good night. That is Dr. Uh, Pravit Jha, who's an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. So again, let's stop talking about it and let's actually get moving on it because, uh, you know, doing it in another year is too late. We can save a lot of these businesses and we can save an awful lot of lives and um, and stress and all the rest of it if we actually put these barriers of protection in, even if they're not perfect. All right, great to have you here on this Thursday. And he may not carry the Trudeau name, but uh, Kyle Kemper is Justin Trudeau's half-brother. And unlike the Trudeau side of the family, which walk, talk, and think in progressive lockstep, it seems Kyle is the black sheep of the family because he does not speak their language. And nor does he buy into a lot of Trudeau's globalist thinking. In fact, he does believe in the Great Reset. 
and that this COVID crisis is being used to overturn power and diminish democracies in favor of tighter controls. And he's a staunch advocate of things like cryptocurrency. He's also an open anti-vaxxer. And when his face appeared on the National Post, there was this immediate backlash from those who say, you know, his views should be silenced. Well, I'm not into censorship and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And I'm very curious to hear from a side of the Trudeau family who sees this country and how and what's going on very differently from the Trudeau progressive agenda. Kyle Kemper joins me now. Great to have you. Alex, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate being on your show. A lot of people would like uh, you not to be on the show and actually your views silenced. You know, they, they would cast you as a quote unquote nutter. Does that surprise you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, it's an information warfare that's that's taking place right now. And, you know, I'd like to just first say that I, I love my brother so much. and I love my family, you know, like from from my root to my crown. And, uh, you know, I wish them nothing but the best. And but I am my own person in my own capacity, and I'm capable of having my own beliefs. And my worldview has been influenced by all sorts of different knowledge and travels all around the world and, and being integrated into many different uh, societies and cultures. And that's what shapes who I am today. And I believe to just kind of be honest, open, truthful, fearless, and gentle. And your brother is 12 years older than you, and so. When it, when I kind of saw the story, my first thought was, gee, I wonder what the family dinners are like. I mean, do you get invited to the family dinners? Do you get to debate these topics with your brother? And, and is he open to listening? Um, honestly, like, you know, I have more of just a familial relationship with my brother. We spend time together. Uh, we all have children. So it's mostly kind of, ch- you know, playtime and uh you know an adventure and excitement when it comes to politics you know i learned a long time ago that uh there isn't too much room to uh to discuss policy and uh you know he i truly believe he's doing the best job that he can in his role as the you know the leader of the liberal party um but uh, in terms of in terms of our discussions it's we are we are mostly family and we don't we don't get we don't get into it. I'm not involved in in the party or their policy in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I've always been told don't discuss politics and religion at the dinner table. And that's probably the smartest advice. I just never follow it. Uh, maybe I should start. Um, you know, it's interesting because your family, your family in the Ottawa area is in the restaurant area. This is a, a, a business right across this country that has been decimated by these lockdown measures. Small businesses being decimated uh, by the measures in place. Uh, when you say you think your brother has done a, a good job, um, when you look at what's going on, and and the effects these policies are having at the provincial and federal level, um, you know, what? Do you, where are you on that? Oh, I think the policies are terrible, and I think the lockdown measures are are a disaster, and they've destroyed the hardworking entrepreneurial class and the family business class of our of of our country, and it's a it's a it's a travesty what has taken place and you know speaking directly like you know i worked in the service industry for a very long time in our family restaurants and the effect like you know to be able to survive for one month of being shut down is 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 life-threatening for for a restaurant business but to go like you know to go on what are we now eight months of 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 lockdown measures on it it's very 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 challenging and i don't know if we'll be able to succeed 
A lot of people uh, won't succeed. And that's the sad reality is that a lot of people look at businesses as bricks and mortar and instead of, you know, families and people and the lives that will be, you know, destroyed, if not lost to to the destruction being caused to the economy. Um, But there has been a lot of conversation about some of the things that that Mr. Trudeau has said as far as the quote unquote great reset. Some knock that off as a conspiracy, but some of the language he has used has led people to, you know, seize the opportunity, Um, you know, has made no bones about the rebuilding Canada back better, all these things. You believe that that is actually something that governments are trying to do. Well, first of all, Great Reset is not a conspiracy theory. It is there's a book written by Klaus Schwab, the you know the head of the World Economic Forum, called The Great Reset. I encourage everybody to read it to understand what they're thinking in terms in terms of all of this. And they've and you know they've made their intentions very clear um, with regard with regards to that. And I would also suggest that you know that listeners look up Event 201, which was the global pre-pan the global pandemic exercise surrounding a coronavirus simulation that took place in October of 2019, about 45 days before the the uh, first case of COVID, which is just beyond belief. It was organized by the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and John Hopkins University. And they came out with recommendations, you know, for how the global business community and international international organizations worked together to, you know, have a unified response to do things like, you know, they used terms like flooding the zone of information with correct and accurate information, aka their correct and inf- uh, accurate information, and silencing and, you know, being active towards suppressing alternative points of view characterized as misinformation and disinformation. And we have seen that play out lockstep. And there will be people, so maybe not my listeners, but there will be people who say that guy's crazy. I mean, this is all conspiracy. So there's this there's this information oh. going around and, and automatically your views get cast off. It's this is part of this is part of like, you know, this divisive culture, uh, cancel culture that we're living in when, you know, someone like me can can make two statements like specifically eventual one took mm-hmm. place. And the Great Reset is a book written by the the head of the World Economic Forum. Like that is not conspiracy. There are. I mean, you're also outspoken. You're an anti-vaxer, so you will not. I don't think take the vaccine that is coming. And I mean, I'm not an anti-vaxer. I will take a vaccine, um, but I do understand why people are hesitant. And I do think that people should be able to question it without being, you know, you know, villainized um, automatically. Absolutely, and I don't, and I don't appreciate you know, like you know the word anti-vaxxer being posted on the front page of the national newspaper. That was the editor's decision, not the writer's decision. And uh, so, are you, so are you not an anti-vaxxer? Or are you just anti this particular move move uh, I, that I, we're going I, into? Stupid is what I am, and the idea of inoculating the entire planet with an experimental vaccine is beyond crazy, in my opinion. We have been like, you know, as a, as a planet, as a species, as a as a unified race, we have been subject to the, uh, the a level of fear mongering that has never occurred before with result to with with regards to covid and how dangerous it is and how scared we should be. And now we're being presented with the vaccine, the covid vaccine as 
hopeful as solution, as something to not be afraid of over and over again, and that it is safe and it is secure. But there are a lot of disturbing facts and figures around the trials and the fact that we have zero data on the long-term effects of it. So to rush an experimental vaccine and use the military to deploy it on our citizens, I think is not only is not only wrong, but it is a crime. And that constitutes, in my opinion, genocide if 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 things go improperly with this. So be very careful about about what you about what you put into your body and what you believe about what you're putting into your body. And we don't have accountability or transparency into the true data on those on those tests. We do not have verifiability and, and supply chain provenance on the, the vaccines themselves, the ingredients that are in the vaccine, the shrink, the vaccines that make it to the endpoint are safe at the endpoint, and that those are the exact same vaccines that were tested and approved. Now, I am not a I am not a doctor. I am not an epidemiologist. I'm not a vaccinologist. I do not have any ties to the big pharma industry. And these are my my own opinions. But I encourage everybody to be concerned and understand that fear is fear is like an illusion. But danger is real and be conscious of danger. And as every doctor listening either turns off the radio or drives off the road, I mean, I don't generally agree with all those views, but I do understand the hesitancy given the speed of which this has been done. And and again, uh, to your point, we have not seen any long-term testing. So I I get that part of it. Um, Just before I let you go, because there's a timely issue in in the news, and I'm curious about your thoughts, um, and it has to do with China. Mr. Trudeau once said that he had an admiration for for a dictatorship. And, you know, he cites China as an example that a government can turn on a dime. Do you think he's been naive on China or do you truly think he believes that if he goes along to get along, that that will work? I, I can't speak for, for Justin. You don't know. OK, I, did, I thought I would throw that at you. And uh, I wasn't sure how much you guys talked about those kinds of policies. Well, Kyle, I do appreciate you on Canadian intergovernmental policy and, and, and that. I don't I, I'm not I, I don't have the insider qualifications to answer that question. Well, I appreciate your honesty. Well, it has been um, interesting chatting with you, Kyle, and I appreciate your time on this. And I thank you. Alex, thank you so much. Everybody out there, thank you so much. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay positive. Remember, danger is real. Fear is an illusion. There you go. Kyle Kemper joining us here, and that is the half-brother of Justin Trudeau. They have totally different thoughts. He's got his thoughts. You've got your thoughts. And now you've got, uh, you can weigh it for yourself. Coming up, 730 days ago today, the two Michaels were kidnapped and tossed in jail. What is being done about it? And why is Canada inviting the Chinese military to this country to train for anything? We'll talk about that next. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, And this is Global News Radio. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.